So last week, uh, we kicked off Advent with uh, the Week of Hope, our Songs of Advent series as we look at different songs or poems uh, from Scripture, either prophecies or things that unfolded around the incarnation, the birth of Jesus. Uh, and last week was the story of Zechariah and his song. Zechariah was the father of John, John the Baptist. And in his... Uh, circumstances of being older, as we've seen God do in Scripture before, uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth, his wife, were promised a son, and they are uh, a little bit in disbelief about that because they're kind of beyond the time of having kids. And because of Zechariah's disbelief, he was stricken mute. He wasn't able to talk. And when he finally, uh, when John was born and he wrote down that his name is John, just as the angel Gabriel told him it would be uh, he was able to talk again, and the first thing he does is praise the Lord, and he blesses God, and so we went through his song talking about hope, and so I mentioned that hope is deferred. All hope is deferred. All hope is in something that hasn't yet happened uh, or haven't, hasn't yet been realized, and so in that time of waiting, God grows us. Um, scripture tells us that no one hopes in what he sees, and so it's always something that's yet to uh, be fulfilled. Uh, talked about how our hope is assured Biblically, all hope is something that is going to happen. We hope in something that is secured for us, that is uh, accomplished in the future, that it is guaranteed. It's not something that is still up for debate or uh, kind of a 50-50. And then last we talked about how hope is secured, how we tie our hope to certain things. And so if God has set a promise before us, we can look back at his faithfulness towards us, towards that promise, um, and we can look at the things unfolding in our lives to tie our hope to, ultimately, our promise of, of redemption, salvation, eternal fellowship with God, um, Jesus, life, death, and resurrection. Uh, those are hope-securing events, right, that are unfolding towards this promise of Jesus coming back again. And so, um, as we look at the advent, the incarnation, the first arrival of Jesus, it is a hope-securing thing that we anchor our hope to. Today, the second week of Advent, is the week of peace. Uh, We'll be in Luke chapter 2, again, surrounding some of the events of Jesus' birth, looking at uh, something that happened uh, just um, a month or so, uh, a little over a month after his birth. And our song today is going to be Simeon's song. Uh, So we'll read about Simeon and his song in Luke 2, verses 21 through 35. Luke 2, 21 through 35. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it was written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, and you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples a light for revelation to the Gentiles 
and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary and his mother, said Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So just as we talked about last week with John, we saw with Elizabeth and Zechariah and John uh, that he was circumcised uh, on the eighth day according to their uh, law, their tradition, their custom, uh, and that's when uh, he was named, and that's when they had this discussion, and why are you going to try to call him John? There's nobody in your name, in your family called that, uh, and yet they were true to the prophecy that was told to them. Jesus was sacrificed, uh, not sacrificed, circumcised after eight days. And uh, on that occasion, as was part of the ceremony to name the baby at that time, he was called Jesus. This is the name the angels told Mary and Joseph that he would bear even before he was conceived. He, you shall call his name Jesus. The name Jesus means Jehovah is salvation. It's the Greek version of the Hebrew name Joshua. And while the name Joshua or Jesus would not have actually been a unique name back then. Jesus was not the only Jesus, but this Jesus was set apart. Because of the promises given to Mary, the promises given to Joseph, they knew that he was different. They knew he was set apart. They knew he was more than just another little Joshua or Jesus running around. In Matthew 1.21, the angel tells Joseph that his son will be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. So pointing to the fact that your son is the Messiah that has been promised, not just a special little boy. He is the promised Messiah. Mary is told in Luke chapter 1 that she will call her son Jesus, that he will be great and be called the Son of the Most High, and that the Lord would give him the throne of David and his kingdom would never end. And so Mary and Joseph are told, your son will be the Messiah, the Savior of his people This is a very special baby Jesus, right? I think sometimes we lose sight of the fact that there may have been other Jesuses running around and uh, Joshua, their Hebrew name, running around, and yet uh, this Jesus was the Son of God, the Messiah, prophesied about, and uh, we see this unfolding event as the prophecies are coming true. And yet, even though Mary and Joseph have just given birth and are, uh, have been called on to raise uh, the Messiah, right, in, in the best earthly fashion that they know how because they are just faithful people, uh, they're not royalty, right? They're not royalty before they have Jesus. They're not royalty after they have Jesus. Their circumstances have not changed. When it came time for the purification ceremony, we see here in Scripture, right, the passage we just read, Mary and Joseph offered up a pair of doves or pigeons for their sacrifice because it says this is what you're supposed to do according to the law. But if you look back in Leviticus chapter 12, where that law is first given, it's supposed to be a lamb offered for that sacrifice unless you can't afford one, it says. And so without the full counsel of Scripture, when we just hear this passage, we say, oh, they're taking their sacrifices to the ceremony that they're supposed to take. They're taking the sacrifices that they can afford to this ceremony, which tells us they are not of people of wealth, right? They're not elites. They're not royals. They're humble, common people. And yet they've been called on to raise Jesus, the Son of the Most High, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. 
The world doesn't yet know, of course, who Jesus is, but Mary and Joseph do, and others sense it as well, like Simeon. He's one of those who senses it. So who is Simeon? Well, most people assume Simeon was older, uh, just because he mentioned in, mentions in his song that he can now depart in peace from the world. Um, he mentions that he's been waiting, or it says that he's been waiting for the consolation of Israel. Uh, some commentators believe he was a priest, but the, scripture, the scriptures do not tell us that explicitly. Um, what it does plainly say is that Simeon was righteous and devout. And we see here in Luke 2 uh, is a, just a beautiful moment between a faithful, patient follower of God and the Messiah that he has waited to meet and that he had been promised by the Lord that you will not die until you see the Christ child, until you see with your own eyes in the flesh the Messiah. And so we think about hope that we talked about last week, and you think about Simeon. We don't know how long he's waited from this prophecy until this time. Um, he's, he rejoices, right? I mean, there's this kind of great celebration when he realizes, when the Holy Spirit kind of confirms to him, this is, this is the child. But I wonder how many times he was in the temple, and uh, right, a, an eight-year-old or eight-day-old, uh, well, he would have been, sorry, uh, this ceremony would happen about 30 days after the circumcision. So it's about 40 days old, okay, uh, for accuracy. So how many 40-day-olds were brought in um, and Simeon thought, could this be the one? Could this be the Christ child? And yet, when Jesus, uh, son of Mary and Joseph, is brought in, the Holy Spirit confirms to him, this is the Christ child. And he just celebrates, he rejoices and he sings this amazing song. And then he blesses Mary and Joseph as well, right? So Simeon's story shows us a couple of aspects of peace that I want to look at today. Just kind of two points about peace. And the first is this. Jesus brings peace for you. Jesus brings peace for you. He brings peace for you personally. Remember the definition of peace in the Bible is the idea of flourishing. It's not all is quiet. It's not simply the absence of conflict. It's not just a ceasefire. This is not two enemies who stop shooting at each other. This is two enemies who come together and then have a great relationship together. That's what peace is biblically. Our definition usually is just kind of like, oh, we, we don't fight. There's no conflict. We don't usually think about peace as harmony. But in Scripture, the word peace conveys harmony. It's beyond absence of conflict, which is I mean, that's the gospel way, right? It's always kind of like the world's way is either this or this, and the gospel always says, but it could be more, right? It's not just neutral. We take you from negative to positive, not just from negative to neutral. And so when we talk about peace, we're talking about flourishing, we're talking about harmony, we're talking about abundance. This is what Jesus brings for you. We see here in this passage that Simeon had been told by God that he would not die until he met the Christ, the Messiah, God's appointed Savior, and because he has the Holy Spirit upon him, he recognizes that Jesus is the Christ. So as Mary and Joseph are simply, uh, again, kind of living their faithful lives of we are faithful Jewish God-fearing people, and so this is what we do. We, we've, uh, we've circumcised our, our child on the eighth day, and then uh, now it's time for the purification ceremony, and so we're going to do that. And they have no idea that Simeon will be there. They have no idea that Simeon has been awaiting this fulfillment of a prophecy given to him. And so while they're just being faithful, as we often see in Scripture, where someone is just being faithful in the everyday things of life, someone else, God is orchestrating this amazing, life-changing event for. 
And so as they come into the temple for, again, they know it's a little bit of a special ceremony because they realize who Jesus is, but they know that not everyone knows who Jesus is. Not everyone recognizes this. They, again, they don't know about Simeon's prophecy. And yet this hope-securing event for Simeon unfolds as he recognizes Jesus as the Christ. So we see from Simeon's reaction that getting to see in person the Christ is a fulfillment of God's promise to him. And he says, now I can die in peace because God has fulfilled this promise to me that uh, I would not pass from this world until I met or laid eyes on the Christ. God did something for Simeon personally, right? He uniquely changed Simeon's life in this promise and fulfillment. This is an example of the peace that Jesus brings to a person individually, personally, uniquely. He brings peace for you. When you trust in Jesus, you come to him with everything it means to be you. Your history, your relationships, your victories, your failures, the things you're good at, the things you're bad at, your mistakes, the things that you've endured, the big moments, the little moments, your likes, your dislikes, your opinions, everything, all of it all of you. So when the Holy Spirit gives you new spiritual life and makes you a new creation, all of what it means to be you, the unique combination of your life that belongs only to you is redeemed in Jesus. So in this sense, Jesus brings peace to you in ways that he doesn't bring peace to everyone else. Now he brings peace to all who believe in him. But for every person, how we apply that peace how we see that peace manifested in us and applied to the brokenness in us is unique to us. This flourishing, this abundance, this redemption, it flows through all the unique corners of our hearts and minds that are different than everyone else's, right? Hearts and minds. This is another reason I always say that there's a unique part to your faith story that only belongs to you. It's kind of like a fingerprint. No one else shares all the details of your life with you. There's a lot of moments that you share together with family, of course, but no one has the exact same DNA, fingerprint, profile match of you. So when I say that Jesus brings peace for you, again, it's not to say he hasn't brought peace for others. It just means there's a unique way in which you experience the peace of God for your story, for your life. Now, you might think that your brokenness or the dark corners of your life are beyond the grace of God, or maybe you thought that at one time. Maybe you felt like Paul, who called himself the chief of sinners, right? The worst of all sinners. But in God offering salvation to Paul and offering salvation to you, Jesus extends peace that the Bible says surpasses understanding. We don't get it. It doesn't make sense. And yet, it's offered. And it changes your story in ways that no one else experiences. Now, we only get to experience this unique, personal, flourishing kind of peace by faith in Jesus. And at the root of this personal, abundant peace is peace with God. Romans 5.1 says that we have peace with God through Jesus. Before we are made spiritually alive in Jesus, the Bible calls us enemies of God. It's not a pretty picture. And while you might not ever thought I am intentionally setting myself at war against God, few people have think that. Some people do think that, but a few of us probably think that that's, that's where I was in life, that I was just out to get God, like I'm, I'm setting myself as an enemy against him. But scripture paints a picture that says, 
If we put ourselves or anything else first instead of God, we're robbing God of glory that he deserves. To rob God of glory is to be his enemy, to exalt or worship anyone or anything above God is in opposition to worshiping God, who is worthy of all praise. And so in this sense, in devoting ourselves to self or something else, which really is devotion to self, we are setting ourselves in opposition to God. And by nature, we are enemies of God. By nature, we are children of wrath. Again, it's not a pretty picture. And so we desperately need to be at peace with God. We don't want to oppose God. We want to be at peace with Him. The reason why this life, which lacks peace with God, lacks peace in general, is because we were created to be at peace with God. We were created to worship Him, to enjoy Him, to enjoy His presence forever, for all eternity. So when we are devoted to ourselves, we're not at peace with God, and we don't have peace within. So there's this constant state of unrest. Even if we don't consciously think, I'm setting myself against God. He is my enemy. Even if we don't think that explicitly, our souls were created to worship Him. And so if we're feeding or fueling some other fire, some other passion, some other devotion, and something else is receiving our worship, whether it's self or something else, we're not worshiping what we were created to be. And so as we've seen throughout all of the different series we've been through, specifically in Ecclesiastes, where it just seems like meaningless, 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 right? And it just feels like this endless toil, this striving. That's what life is if you're not at peace with God, because our souls were created to be at peace with God. And so until they are, there's this perpetual unrest in our souls, not peace, conflict, unrest. And so that flourishing, that abundance. We're not looking just for a ceasefire with God, right? We're looking for harmony, flourishing, abundance with God. That's what we experience by faith in Christ. And not only do we like, experience it for the first time and it becomes uh, something that we are able to experience, something we're able to achieve or obtain, we maintain peace in our lives by staying our minds on Him, continuing to trust in Him. This is a promise found in Isaiah 26.3. It says, You keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on you, who trusts in you. And so if we find ourselves as believers falling outside of peace with God or not experiencing peace with God, it's because we've uh, stopped staying our mind on him, dwelling on him, trusting in him. So there's this individual and unique component of peace to your faith story if you've trusted in Christ. But there's also a general offer of peace to mankind. This is why I say Jesus doesn't just bring peace for you, but Jesus brings peace for all. It's our second point. Jesus brings peace for all. I mentioned that Jesus brings peace for you, but he doesn't just bring peace for you. Simeon's song declares that the salvation Jesus brings that has been prepared in the presence of all peoples And that salvation will be revealed to Gentiles, not just the Jews. So while in his song and in his circumstances, in his story, we see that God is granting a specific, unique peace to Simeon that he wasn't wasn't promised to all other people that they would see the Christ before they died, we also see Simeon declare this gospel offer of peace to sinners, both Jew and Gentile alike. Paul would later write that Jesus came into the world to save sinners, plural, 
right? This may have gone without saying, but just because Jesus saves us personally doesn't mean we should lose sight of the fact that God desires all to come to repentance. The peace with God that we find in Jesus is available to all who believe. It might manifest in different ways. It might be applied to the brokenness, unique brokenness in different ways, and yet it is still peace with God. The same flourishing peace that reconciles sinners to our Creator can then uniquely bring peace to all the corners of their lives, right? And everyone's unique faith story is unique to them, and yet it's still this peace with God that they're experiencing. Which means that peace with God then leads to peace with others. We can have peace with God and with each other by faith. It's crazy that we often think the power of Christ is sufficient to reconcile us to a holy God, but it's not powerful enough to reconcile us to an estranged relative or to mend some other broken relationship that we might have. Now, we can't act or think for others. You can only respond in faith for yourself. This is why Romans 12, 18 says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. But we shouldn't be quick to write someone off, right? We shouldn't be quick to decide that's impossible. They're beyond the peace of God. We need to make sure that we've pursued to our ability what does depend on us. We shouldn't decide someone is beyond the peace of God just like we should never decide someone is beyond the grace of God, right? Same thing and um, that God has offered us. We should never say, well, yeah, but I kind of deserved it, right? That's kind of our attitude. I mean, I don't think you're going to get there. That's not our job. That's not our place. But is there a point? This is kind of like a side, this is a little tangent, like message within the message. Is there a point where we should stop pursuing peace? Will our devotion to Jesus sometimes fly in the face of certain types of peace? Yes. And I wanted to include this because uh, you may know or you may come across this at some point, but Jesus shockingly says in Matthew 10, 34, do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. This is like a wait a second moment because we just talked about peace and we know that when he's born, the angels sing peace on earth. We know that he's called the prince of peace. So to make sense of this, we need to measure this statement from Jesus against the rest of scripture. Look for kind of the deeper context of what he's saying in Matthew 10. First, as I started to mention, the rest of scripture overwhelmingly elevates peace. We have the verses I've already mentioned today in addition to the beatitude about peacemakers and the fruit of the Spirit, including peace. And the song the angels sing at Jesus' birth, which talks about peace on earth. We know that he's called the Prince of Peace. We also know that when before Jesus left this earth, he said, my peace I leave with you. So the overarching picture, the overall theme is pretty consistent, that peace is a good thing and that Jesus offers it. By faith. So what is he saying when he says, I did not come to bring peace to the earth, I came to bring a sword? Jesus would sometimes do this to kind of capture the attention, to throw people off and say, whoa, what? What was that? Because then he goes on to explain in that passage in Matthew 10, he says that if you love anyone else more than me, if you elevate anything else, is kind of what I was mentioning earlier, this idea of robbing God of his glory or not devoting our full selves to him. 
He explains that peace with God and worship of God is to be placed above all other relationships. This can lead to conflict with others. This is part of the if possible, so far as it depends on you. So if peace with others comes at the cost of devotion to God, then it is the peace with others that is to be sacrificed, not the devotion to God. So when he says, I came to bring a sword, that's what he starts to talk about. He starts to talk about these family relationships and how uh, you, you shouldn't love your mother or father more than you love God. And he's saying if you do that, then you're creating conflict between yourself and the holy God. So he's saying the opposite of that. Sometimes if you're devoting yourself fully to God and at peace with him, it may produce conflict with others. But Jesus is very clear, don't get it twisted, that the ultimate relationship, the priority in those relationships should be the relationship with God. And it might lead to conflict. That's a little bonus message within the message. Um, but I didn't want that teaching from Jesus about the sword to, to be confusing or to be taken as some kind of contradiction. Uh, but that's what Jesus is pointing us to in that passage. Again, the overwhelming message we find in the Bible is that God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, they are for peace. They bring peace. They produce peace in us. They manifest peace within our hearts, in our relationships with others, and around the world. If you're perpetually unsettled and not experiencing the peace of Jesus in your life, then there are two things to consider. Have you ever truly surrendered your life to him by faith? Right? That's step number one. That's where peace with God is found in that surrender, in that faith, trusting in Christ. And if so, and you're still unsettled, then it's a question of what's keeping you from staying your mind on Him. I mentioned that Isaiah 26.3, that God keeps you in perfect peace if your mind is stayed on Him, trusting in Him. I think this pairs well with Philippians 4, 6, and 7. It tells us that faith is not just the key to initial peace with God, but to continuing in peace with God. It says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, I used to think that this was kind of a chronological transaction. Like, I submit my requests, and then I wait for peace from the Lord which often led to, I've submitted my request, where's my peace? But I think what Scripture is pointing us to is that in the exchange, in the offering of the request, in truly unloading or unburdening ourselves of the worry for those requests, the peace of God enters as we unleash that burden. And so throughout my life, maybe this is true for you as well, when I thought... I was unburdening myself by taking something to the Lord. I really was just trying to continue to worry about it and asking the Lord to give me a hand with it and not truly releasing it to Him. And so there was an absence of peace. And yet, what I think Scripture is pointing us to, what I believe God desires for us, is that if we're trusting Him, if we're really walking by faith, that as we lay those burdens down, as we take those requests to Him, we're unburdening ourselves. We're saying that is yours to worry about now, not mine. I think about um, think about weddings the other day, and a deacon, I think it was Deacon asked if I had been a groomsman in a wedding. And I was like, dude, I've been a groomsman in a lot of weddings. 
Um, not to toot my own horn, I was just, it took me a long time to get married, and so if you're a single dude, sometimes you get called on to be in weddings. And so uh, I was a groomsman several times. Always a groomsman, never a groom, for a long time. Uh, but I remember the best man job, from my perspective, this is why it came up, Andrew. I used the knife that you gave me at your wedding. And I said, this is probably the most practical groomsman gift I've ever received, because I still use it to this day. Um, <clears throat> anyway, that's how the conversation started. But I said, the best man's job, I didn't tell all this to Deacon, but the best man's job is to take care of whatever he needs to so the groom doesn't have to worry on that day, right? Uh, and I remember at our rehearsal, we weren't at the site we were going to be married at. We had to rehearse somewhere else. And we didn't really have a coordinator. Uh, and so we were planning different things. We had people over different things. But when it came time to like practice the ceremony, there was just some confusion and some like lack of direction. Uh, and people kept looking to us, and I was like, we, I, we don't want to worry about this right now. Like, just tell us where to stand. And so I turned to my best man. I said, Randy, take care of this stuff. And he did. Randy's a great leader. He's an awesome friend. He took care of it. But in that sense, I unburdened myself completely, and I didn't have to worry about it. I knew it was taken care of. And so what God is calling us to do, when he calls us to cast our cares upon him, to bring him our requests, to bring him our anxieties, to bring him our worries. He's not calling us to hold on to our worries and just grab his hand, because then we're still seeing him, we're still worried about him, we're kind of like, oh, hopeful, maybe you'll do this. What he's calling us to do is say, you got this. I don't have to worry about it. And in doing so, we're filled with this peace that surpasses understanding. I don't get it. I don't know how you're going to take care of it. I don't know how you're going to get it done, but I know that you can. I know that you will. I know I'm not supposed to worry about it anymore. That's when the peace of Christ fills our hearts and minds, guards our hearts and minds, right? Because we're trusting God by faith. And so it's not this transaction of, I've submitted my request, now where's my peace? It's I'm truly surrendering these things. I'm truly unburdening myself of these things so that your peace will fill my heart and mind. That's what we want to point people to at the Advent season, right? That's what uh, this uh, promise unfolding event is in history. When Jesus comes, he promises peace with God. He promises peace with others. The angels declare peace on earth because the God of the universe has come to dwell among us. And not just to dwell among us for kicks and giggles. He's come to dwell among us to live a perfect life, to take on our sin, to pay our sin debt, to give us forgiveness of our sins and eternal life with him, eternal peace with God. And so when we point people to peace on earth, goodwill to men, when we sing it ourselves, do we understand we're singing of flourishing harmony with God of the universe, flourishing harmony, abundance with our fellow man because of what Christ has done in our lives. That's what we celebrate at Advent. We celebrate God extending this peace to us that we could never have achieved on our own. Let's pray. God, we thank you again for this morning. We thank you for this time, this place to gather in the name of Jesus, to celebrate Jesus, to lift high the name of Jesus. We trust your word when you say that if we would lift high the name of Jesus, then he would draw people to himself. And so, God, we want to be people who are exalting you, praising you, worshiping you. We want to be people who are known by devotion to you, utmost worship, 
that no one could look at any of our lives and say, yeah, you love Jesus, but you love this more. Or you, yeah, you claim Christ, but you seem to worship this more. Help us, God, to, to evaluate our, uh, our spending, our, our time, our affection, to reveal the idols in our lives, to reveal the things that we are uh, we're robbing you of glory, robbing you of worship. We're so thankful, God, that you have extended peace to us with you while we were still sinners, while we were children of wrath. And that by faith, we can not only have peace with you, but peace with others. So God, we pray for this peace. Peace again to be manifested in us and our relationships with others. Peace that would be a, um, noticeable to others, attractive to others, because it is uh, a gospel peace. And God, may we have opportunity and faithfulness to share the reason for the peace that we have with others as well. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.